0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we continue our discussion on the Gilded Age and pick up with other captains of industries such as J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller. We then go on to discuss the monopolies that grew out of their corporations and also some of the legislation that the government had to enact in order to combat monopolies and make sure that there was fair trade. So we go into the Sherman Antitrust Act. We go into some other committees such as the Federal Trade Commission, the Departments of Commerce, the Departments of Labor. We get into more recent monopolies like AT&T and perhaps the modern day monopolies like Google and Facebook. But before we go to Gene, a quick mention of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you in part by Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. Go see our friends at Keen Insights for all of your internet marketing needs. Next, EliteBookEdits.com. Writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. Go see our friends over at EliteBookEdits.com for all of your book editing needs, both fiction and nonfiction. Lastly, a little plug for myself, Immortals Revelations, now available for sale in Amazon and Kindle, as well as The Naughty List, Immortals Revelations is about two immortals, vampires, but they they don't like that term, who decide they want to reveal themselves to the world, start filming a documentary, and then things start going wrong. And The Naughty List is a fun little Christmas romantic comedy about two individuals who have been independently working with Santa Claus to get people off of The Naughty List, and then Santa kind of sets them on a path to meet, and it's a little fun romantic comedy. I hope you check it out. Thank you. Now, on to our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away.
1: So this is a pretty big topic. So when last we left off with Andrew Carnegie, and today we're going to pick up with J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan has a different story than Carnegie's. He grows up in a wealthy family and is afforded with just about every privilege possible for the time. His first job was at the New York branch of the firm his father worked for like Carnegie he was also able to avoid fighting in the Civil War by paying for someone else to fight in his place His father Julius is a man of great wealth and influence and is a partner in In a European financial company, and he surrounds his son with successful men who are slightly older, have, you know, a little bit more experience, and can help to really sharpen his skills. They created a company known as Dabney Morgan & Co., and this company would grow into what would become Drexel Morgan & Co. in 1871, and then simply J.P. Morgan & Co. He invested heavily in the railroad industry, and he... When he, when he would take over a company, he would demand a seat on the board. And this proved to be incredibly valuable for him. And we'll talk about this in later podcasts. But it kind of put him in the know of what other businesses were doing and what was happening. And so he has these positions on boards of companies and that he owns stock in. And it allowed him to kind of move the chess pieces. And it put him in a position to direct the actions that companies would take. He often settled disputes and helped to make deals between competitors. He owned a vast estate in upstate New York where he lived with his family. And my favorite, he bought a yacht to travel back and forth to New York City because who wants to take the subways, right? So there is the story that I love of Morgan using his yacht to help settle a dispute between the two biggest railroad executives, and he invited them aboard his yacht and then refused to bring them ashore until they agreed to his term. It's pretty gangster, right? You're on this boat, you're not getting off until you do what I want. It was a bold move, but it avoided a potential bankruptcy of the railroad industry, which would have destroyed the U.S. economy at the time. His terms also benefited him tremendously as well. He wasn't satisfied with just running railroads and financing major deals. He set his eyes on the steel industry. And as we discussed earlier, he created the country's first billion dollar company after he purchased Carnegie's steel company and renamed it U.S. Steel. Now, John D. Rockefeller, he started early. There's a story how at the age of seven, he raised turkeys and sold them for a profit. He is known for being one of the richest men in history. He also has a very interesting story. His father was a traveling merchant and had all sorts of other women that he had children with, and he would bring them back home thinking they, you know, they would all live happily under the same roof. I'm sure that did not work out well for him. John Rockefeller had to go to work as a child in order to help bring in money for the family. And he had a number of odd jobs. He worked as a food clerk, he saved his money, he worked hard and he listened to how every aspect of the business worked. He soon owned his own food company and he did well, but it was when he invested in the oil business that his wealth and his business really flourished. In 1859, when oil was discovered in the United States, it opened a new emerging market. He quickly realized that the real money in the oil industry was in refining oil. New technologies not only allowed him to sell the oil, but also the byproducts. We're talking things like paraffin wax, tar, even Vaseline, right? He wanted to make money wherever he could. He goes on to own a majority of the refineries in Ohio and would control 90% of the oil production in the United States. Now, how did he go about creating that monopoly? Rockefeller built his oil empire differently than Carnegie built his monopoly over the steel industry. I mentioned how he controlled 90% of oil production in the United States. Through purchasing competitors or drastically cutting prices to force competitors to close down, he soon became one of the only shows in town. Once he seized control over the market, he was able to raise prices. He moved his company to another state to avoid antitrust laws. So just as a horizontal line goes across from left to right, Rockefeller got control over oil company after oil company after oil company. While Carnegie, you know, picture a vertical line in your mind, controlled each step of the process in producing steel, the mines, the plants, the railroad lines. He didn't have to rely on any other business in order to make his profit. Now for Rockefeller, Standard Oil, was later broken apart in 1911 by the Supreme Court case Standard Oil of New Jersey versus the United States. He was found guilty of monopolizing the oil industry, and his company was broken up into 34 different entities, many of which, years later, would end up merging back together, making him even wealthier. So I don't know who gets the points there, right? Now, what were the government policies That allowed individuals to amass such wealth. The simple fact that there was no regulation. We talked about that term laissez-faire earlier. As a small number of individuals gained control over entire industries, you begin to see complaints. Complaints from the working class and the average American citizen. There are some really great political cartoons from this time period which you know, show how these titans of industry had members of the legislative branch in their pocket, paid with stock, campaign contributions, jobs for their children. They either turned a blind eye to their practices or they agreed to pass legislation that benefited those companies. As the uproar in American society increased, the federal government had to act. It will not be until the progressive era which we'll discuss in a later podcast, that necessary changes like child labor laws and the rise of labor unions will help to change all of these dangerous and terrible conditions that the American worker has as their reality. Unions at this point are being stamped out as much as possible. And the Supreme Court was targeting unions as being a detriment to the ability of an individual to negotiate a fair contract with their employer. Congress has the right to regulate trade, not only with foreign governments, but also trade amongst the states. So in 1887, the federal government began to regulate interstate trade through the ICC, which is the Interstate Commerce Commission. At first, it was solely tasked to regulate the railroad industry. And additional laws would be needed to enforce regulations over the industry, and the ICC would go on to regulate other entities. President Theodore Roosevelt, when he became president in 1901, went after monopolies, but not all of them. He became known as a trust buster, as anger increased over the practices of some monopolies, and not just prices, but also the ways in which these businesses treated their workers. These big businesses were able to buy influence within the government. And we talked about that a bit earlier. The government needed to act. The passage of the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890, which was named after U.S. Senator John Sherman from Ohio, who was also at one point Secretary of the Treasury and also Secretary of State at another, not at the same time. With this law, the government hoped to break apart bad monopolies that sought to dominate a particular market. The law also allowed for the targeting of unions as they were seen as a trust and as a way to limit competition within an industry. The act did a number of things. It restricted the ability of a company to monopolize an industry, and two, it prevented the creation of anti-competitive agreements. And this allowed for companies to be sued for violating the the rules stipulated by the law and those lawsuits were able to come from either private parties or the government. So there was this whole notion of let there be competition but let it be fair. The 1890 law wasn't enough. Additional laws would you know be needed to be passed to get rid of loopholes. In 1914, for example, the Clayton Antitrust Act was passed, and it singled out certain business practices as being illegal, things like price fixing, um, you know, targeting discriminatory shipping agreements. And in addition to a variety of laws, a number of different agencies were created as well. In 1903, President Teddy Roosevelt created a number of government agencies to act as an overseer, for big business to gather data that would help to break down monopolies but also protect the American worker and the ability to earn a living wage the bureau of corporations was created and its sole purpose was to gather data on both industry and government policy and to be able to provide the president or members of Congress with reports as it saw fit, as as the information was needed. If you want more information on that, you can actually go to the FTC.org in order to learn more. The FTC is the Federal Trade Commission and it replaced the Bureau of Corporations in 1914. Its mission is to protect the American consumer and to promote competition and innovation in the United States economy. They are the ones who investigate the news of unfair business practices and bring lawsuits against individuals and companies who break the law. And they monitor and they review various you know, mergers, especially the mergers that have the potential to create monopolies over an industry. The Department of Commerce and Labor was created in 1903. And eventually in 1914, that department was split into two different departments, how it remains today. Although, you know, eventually it becomes a cabinet level position and it becomes, you know, a separate Department of Commerce and a Department of Labor. Each of these departments has a number of different agencies that helped the secretaries of commerce and the secretary of labor carry out the mission of their respective departments. One thing I do want to talk about is something called the Peugeot Committee, and it was in 1912. And they went after J.P. Morgan and other bankers, especially on Wall Street. And there were debates on whether or not the federal government had the right to tax income. And, and those debates had kind of gone on and off since the start of the Civil War the Supreme Court had overturned a graduated income tax law. And so the thought was, well, you know, let's try a constitutional amendment, thinking that would be really tough. That process is lengthy. And honestly, most people never thought states would approve or ratify the amendment. Well, they did. And income has been taxed ever since. When we talk about the progressive era, we'll get a little bit more into the 16th Amendment, which is the graduated income tax. The Federal Trade Commission was also a byproduct of the Pujo Committee. Now, I want to talk a little bit about modern-day monopolies. AT&T is a great example, or a more recent example, of a monopoly. Most people today, well, in fact, all people today have cell phones, especially smartphones. I know I'm always on the hunt for a better carrier option and to lower my bill and to improve my service. Imagine if there was only one major provider. The U.S. government broke apart AT&T and forced the owners into creating 12 different regional telephone companies. Like Rockefeller, some of those baby bells, as they were called, merged together in later years. Google, another great example. Think about how people access information and the search engine they use to get it. Most people will use the phrase, let's Google it, when they don't know an answer. They have done a really impressive job of just leaving other companies behind in the dust. I think it's important to play devil's advocate a bit. Can they, should they be taken on by the federal government? If you have built a company that has just simply outperformed its competitors do you deserve to be looked at as the big bad wolf is it merely survival of the fittest
0: well you bring up a few companies there you bring up at&t which was found to be a monopoly and they broke up at&t into three areas uh phone service phone equipment and yellow pages so back in the day you had paid a lot of money for a long distance call you were probably renting your phone people were renting I, i still remember finding my when my parents had their Phone bill, uh, I was probably like 25, 30 years old, and they were paying five bucks a month for their phones. And I was like, what's this? Oh, they were still paying for their, their phone equipment. And then Yellow Pages. The, um, the Google question is a better one. It's a little bit more modern day, but you have other search engines, but Google seems to have the market cornered. It's really when they have a problem. When they do things like, you know, they're controlling the rates at which people get paid for advertising on their sites by not opting into their network or they are controlling who can get income from their own content on YouTube. Uh, you're, you're getting down to the point there where maybe it's a little bit of a problem, but I think that's that's something for another day. but yeah I see that I see the problem Facebook can be held to task too all of these big tech companies are controlling more and they have more influence. Over government, maybe government should have a little bit of influence on them. But we have those rules. I remember Microsoft going down that road too.
1: It's funny you bring up Microsoft. I once went to a conference led by Joel Klein, who had, and who who was a lawyer, for kind of famously bringing down Microsoft. And the whole time he's giving his you know spiel, all I could I couldn't stop laughing because behind him was a Microsoft sign the whole time. Like the man who brought down Microsoft, here he was using it. And you also mentioned Facebook. Facebook, you know, many people argue that Facebook is a modern day monopoly. It bought four out of five of the most widely used social media platforms. When you think about how most people communicate, most people get their news, or even how businesses advertise, Facebook ranks at the top of those areas. The political impact that Facebook had on the most recent U.S. presidential election is cause for great concern amongst lawmakers. And it will be interesting to see how that plays out. The debate, the current debate on Facebook blocking certain posts about COVID-19 or COVID vaccines, how much influence should one company have? And that is definitely something that can be debated. How should history remember men like Carnegie, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt? Is society today still somewhat of a gilded age? At the surface, do things look one way, but in reality, it's a whole other story? Do current campaign finance laws still allow wealthy business owners to pressure or strong-arm politicians into getting certain laws passed or getting them to stall or completely stop what would really be essential or necessary laws? How much does the average person turn a blind eye to corruption? Are the stories of the conditions for workers at Amazon facilities getting similar attention that stories of poor working conditions in factories and cities in the early 1900s got. Why do we allow career politicians? Has it done American society any good to have the same people in public office for decades? And I want to end this with one of my favorite quotes from Mark Twain. Politicians and diapers must be changed often and for the same reasons."
0: You raised some very good questions there at the end, one of which near and dear to my heart, about having term limits, certainly for the House and the Senate. I think that's long overdue, and they wield way too much power with the amount of time there. All that time in office does lend itself to corruption, right? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. If they have the ability to continue to be there, who knows? Anyway... Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.